Starry Voices. Demystifying Zero Trust is a podcast created by Istari, a global cybersecurity platform. At Istari, our mission is to help create a digitally resilient future for the businesses we work with. This podcast series explores the strategy of Zero Trust as a way to help build cyber resilience. In this episode, we're speaking with Chris Hetner, former SEC Chair, Senior Cybersecurity Advisor and Risk Executive about the regulatory aspects of cybersecurity and how organizations can leverage Zero Trust to meet many of those requirements. Thank you very much, Chris, for joining today. Really appreciate your time. Why don't you go ahead and take a few moments here to introduce yourself and what you've been doing over the last few years? Sure, Don. Thanks for having me on the show. So I've been in the cyber security arena, gosh, I'm probably dating myself now since the early 90s when I was a undergraduate student at John Jay College Criminal Justice in the great city of New York, studying the intersection between criminal behavior and use of information technology. That's early days. Fast forward several years, two or three decades later, been in the mostly financial services arena, global CISO for a top 10 bank that spent Recently, which is an interesting turn in my career, in my early 40s, I go and serve as senior advisor to the Securities Exchange Commission chair. So I worked for both Chair White and Chair Clayton in forming cybersecurity policy across the United States securities market. At that point, it was right around $6 trillion market and mostly informing the way we think about oversight and policy, uh, particularly around uh, publicly listed companies and Uh, disclosure requirements and navigating uh, the muddy waters of uh, how cyber threats can impact a company in terms of its balance sheet, uh, as well as some of the implications around disclosure, which I know we'll talk about later on. And then the last three and a half years back in the private sector, serving as senior advisor to the National Association of Corporate Directors, we've got a portfolio of about 23,000 members and really standardizing around how we think about governing and reporting cyber risk upstream to the board of directors, as well as uh, delivering a cyber risk reporting capability based on analytics born through the risk transfer market. So it's been quite the journey and look forward to uh, today's discussion. Thanks, Chris. It's awesome that you've been very close to the fraud end of things and the reporting end of things. I really wanted to talk today about the breach notification that went into effect earlier this year. How do you think that has affected and really changed the way CISOs think about breaches within the organization? It's a great question. So for all publicly listed companies, and right now within the United States is about 5,500, are required by federal law to disclose security breaches and incidents to the Securities Exchange Commission as a matter of transparency. The new disclosure requirements that are likely going to be ratified and voted on by early next year are changing and strengthening how corporations and technology leaders think about awareness in terms of how they implement processes to ensure they have quick and accurate disclosure around incidents and the supporting risk management policies and how that makes its way upstream to the board of directors. It's quite an interesting shift that we're seeing here because the current cybersecurity ecosystem is really centered around people, process, technology, a heavy focus on technology if we think about the 
the types of network telemetry tools that are scraping different types of threats on the network, reporting to SIM platforms and security operations centers. But as the cybersecurity ecosystem continues to evolve, at the end of the day, the viewpoint that we have in the regulatory community and the boardroom community is that it still lacks the ability to contextualize cyber threats and incidents to business operational financial exposure. And this lack of capability is problematic for the industry. It's going to create challenges because the heightened cyber disclosure requirements driven by the SEC and, by the way, by Department of Homeland Security for critical infrastructure operators, all centered around the same principles contained within these proposed rules are that listed companies are required to report the cyber incident within four days once it's quote unquote determined to be material. Now, material determination is ultimately influenced by the incident that occurred, the impact to the company, the impact to its business, its operations, and its financial condition. And unfortunately, our incident response detection monitoring ecosystems are largely focused on network telemetry and don't have the ability to contextualize the incidents to that materiality decision, which begs the question whether we're prepared to meet these new requirements. And therefore, we need to be, as a community, thinking about you know not only within our organizations, but the tooling platforms that we purchase. How do we level up the insights and the analytics to align those types of incidents to business financial factors when contemplating whether to report or not? And I'll just give some examples here, Don. The types of costs and what we call adverse consequences that the company may incur or experience as a result of a cyber incident are things such as costs due to a business interruption a decrease in production, delays in product launches. There were two companies publicly disclosed this year. I won't name names. One was a healthcare company, one was a manufacturer. And as a result of a business interruption event, largely due to ransomware, both of them took $100 million write-downs as part of their financial disclosures. But we also contemplate as part of the risk decisioning is what it, how much is it going to cost to pay the ransom, for instance, or any other extortion demands. There's also remediation costs, such as liability for stolen assets and information, increased cybersecurity protections. What about increase in your premium costs due to insurance and other facets, such as like lost revenue and intellectual property theft? And hey, we can't ignore the, what I call the litigation or the class action suits where these individual or syndicates are targeting directors and officers. And those implications from a cost perspective can be in the hundreds of millions in the billions of dollars. So I think this represents a call to action by the community to really think about leveling up their incident response capabilities, including the vendors that they engage in to ensure that they're aligning those incidents to business operational financial implications to inform that materiality. That's a very good point. Two of the key tenants within the zero trust architecture, as it's defined by NIST, is really around classification and identification. And many organizations fail on that simple of a task, mostly because of just years of technical debt or years of incomplete documentation and nobody has put a focus on it. 
But if you don't have that identification and classification done, how are you going to know whether or not the breach was material to an organization? That, that's tried and true. And having that insight into what to protect is really the first step towards establishing any type of cybersecurity program. When I was a CISO back 12 years ago, feels like a lifetime ago, one of the first questions I asked across this global platform, and keep in mind, we had roughly 100,000 employees, $500 billion in assets operating across 60 countries. And the question was, okay, so where's the IT asset inventory? Where are the core assets in terms of data? How are they classified? Who owns what? What's the dependency in terms of supply chain and relationship between those data sets and our core systems and core applications? And that took a good 18 months just to get that up and running and established. We were still discovering data centers in Eastern Europe <laughs> over, over a 12-month period. But this is really the core foundation here. It's identifying those core data assets, classifying them, and ensuring that, most importantly, that your classification process is needled through the enterprise risk management organization. Because you want folks like the owners of the business, the individuals that run compliance and risk management, legal, finance, you want those folks to all weigh into that risk calculation to drive and inform that classification of the asset. And then once that data asset is classified, then it's up to the security team to go and execute protective measures based on that direction. But unfortunately, it's not well uh, aligned to enterprise risk management. Therefore, the cybersecurity organization is introduced with many blind spots. Yeah, that alignment has been a challenge for many organizations. And with the importance of data protection, we've had GDPR, we've had the Consumer Data Protection Act, we've had lots of laws that have come along in the last 10 years around protecting data. It really surprises me that enterprise risk management hasn't really embraced cyber risk or data protection risk as one of their key drivers for developing their business continuity and disaster recovery capability and their risk scoring internally. It's, to your point, been just lobbed over the fence to the cyber organization for them to figure out, but it really needs to be integrated between the two organizations. Absolutely. And one of the vantage points that, that I have operating with the enterprise risk in the boardroom community during my time at the Securities Exchange Commission, now with the NACD, it's it really, it's largely a disconnect in terms of the level of communication and the articulation of cyber risk as it's made from management, including the cybersecurity organization, upstream to enterprise risk management, which is largely comprised of risk executives, finance, legal, compliance and then all the way upstream to the board of directors. And what we've seen, and we've actually surveyed the NACD community over the last three and a half years on this topic, is, is the disconnect between the cybersecurity organization and the board of directors on how tactical threats can be introduced to the environment, and then downstream, what would those threats, how would they be realized? And what's the ultimate impact to our business? And on average, I'd say about 70% of the individual surveyed still do not understand 
the level of reporting and metrics that's being delivered into the boardroom. So I think it's a consequence of contextualizing cyber and technology risk to those areas that would represent material impact to the business and then back into there. Okay, so here's where we are from a architectural perspective, from a technological perspective, here's our supply chain exposure, and here's how much potential risk that we have in terms of financial and business exposure, and then present that to the board in such a way that's more business oriented, that they understand and can enact the proper governance and support the cybersecurity organization with the proper funding. They might decide, hey, if we've got, I'm just throwing a hypothetical number out, if we've got $100 million in unaddressed cyber risk, and that could manifest through ransomware, intellectual property theft, and theft of funds, the board may say, hey, we're willing to accept you know, 20% of that risk, but the balance needs to be managed down. And then it's a matter of how do you deploy those capital resources investments in order to suppress that risk in a material way. Yeah, and if enterprise risk management is not actively engaged with both the board of directors and with the cybersecurity organization, how are they going to determine whether or not those risks are being adequately managed? And ultimately, who are they going to, quote unquote, blame in the event that an event does happen? We all know that they are going to happen in just about every environment. There's going to be some sort of an issue that pops up. But we've had issues with CISOs being directly blamed for breaches in an environment when they haven't been connected to ERM. ERM is not really communicated the risk to the board of directors. The board of directors hasn't really been in the loop. There's that kind of three-way triangle disconnect that's happening. What is a CISO or a senior VP or whoever is managing cyber risk in an organization, what are they going to do or what should they do to be able to communicate that risk to ERM and to the board of directors? It's a major challenge, Don. And outside of the boardroom, I work with many CISOs through various forums to help strengthen their communications. It's about understanding the business, the mission, what motivates the company from a profit growth perspective. In some cases, I recommend, hey, just read the strategic plan of the company issued by the CEO and the board of directors. But what are the core tenets, the goals, objectives for the company to grow? Could there be introduction of potential impediments to that growth? And so what we're seeing here is a broader net being cast across a wide range of stakeholders as it pertains to cybersecurity transparency, which includes the obviously the regulators, but also the investor community, the executives, such as the chief risk officer or the chief financial officer, the board of directors. And at the end of the day, the those folks need to be on the same page with the security team and therefore building a common language that all folks across those respective communities can rally against, which includes for the investor community, how should they be better informed about risks and security measures and responses to preserve value to the company? For executives, they need to understand how do they strengthen their security detection reporting processes to ensure that they're meeting their responsibilities to protect the investors. And board of directors how do we enable the board to enhance their oversight, to give them the tools and the analytics and the insights so that they're responsive to cybersecurity exposures or the state of play as it pertains to cybersecurity? I see many CISOs 
delivering cyber reports into the board that, quite frankly, are very technical. I would argue that these types of metrics should not leave the security operations center. <laughs> they should stay within the SOC. But then on top of that, layer on that business context that will enable the board to react and enact proper oversight. And that will ultimately strengthen the cybersecurity team's resources, their ability to detect a breach and respond and report. But without that common level of communications, uh, I think we're still going to be in this quandary for, for some time. Yeah, I agree. It's a bad habit of my own and a bad habit of other security professionals to tend to dive into the technical when you want to really communicate the risk to an organization. But board of directors, not necessarily a technical organization. CEOs, CFOs, COOs, again, not necessarily technical people. So that communication is really vital understanding how to communicate to the rest of the executive team, to the board of directors, so they really articulate what the risk is and what risk it is that they want to absorb, to your point earlier. And then you can take that as a CISO back to your technical team and say, this is our charter. This is what we have to protect against. This is the amount of risk we're willing to take on as an organization, as per the board of directors and executive team. How do we address this? Yeah, no, it's a great point. And it's one of the capabilities that being reinforced across the NACD community by delivering guidance and principles and beyond that, providing financial exposure analysis that is directly attributed to that organization because every organization is gonna look different. A healthcare company is gonna look different than a, for instance, a big pharma versus a hospital versus a bank, but leveraging insights that allows leaders to make informed decisions on, hey, what's our overall financial exposure due to cyber risk and cyber attacks? Let's gain a view as to where those threats are most likely to cause financial losses to the business. Let's gain some insights in terms of how effectively we're deploying controls to most effectively mitigate those losses. And then ultimately, let's gain some insights in terms of where we have opportunities to transfer some of this risk, or maybe we can de-risk ourselves by being less reliant on supply chain. And you almost want to stress test the organization, the balance sheet and the policies across a wide range of cyber incidents to make sure that you're in a position where you're maintaining business resilience. And you're going to hear that ring through as a common theme. It is really, this is all about maintaining resiliency across the organization. Yeah, very good point. A resiliency, whether or not it's cyber or business or financial, is really going to be the key to the success of an organization long term. Now, you mentioned there around your controls and understanding your effectiveness of your controls and your architecture and things like that. How do you think zero trust can affect success of an organization with their controls? Zero trust is going to start with the concept of the architectural approach, where we're not necessarily securing or applying most of the focus on the network itself. It's really about the attribution, the I'm sorry, the application of the controls and defenses against the resource and the data, the resource being the individual, or it could be application program interface, it could be an API, it could be an asset, just traditional application and the data itself. And how do we ensure that around that asset, we're applying 
the appropriate credential uh, management, access management, operational control risk management. Are we deploying endpoint capabilities? Are we focusing on hosting environments? Are we looking at the interconnectedness in the infrastructure? And the focus should be on let's restrict resources to those with the need to access. It's the concept of least minimum privileges to that asset and then prove that those assets require additional access based on relativity to the business mission. And I think that's where we're going to see a strengthening between some of these regulations, disclosure requirements, and connectivity to the board and how we deploy zero trust across these assets. Because at the end of the day, the zero trust architecture and the underlying defenses and controls should be reflective of those mission objectives tied to the business. Absolutely. And when you do adopt that zero trust approach architecturally, and to your point, you're focusing on data, you're focusing on resources within the environment, that allows an organization to very quickly determine the materiality of a breach. If it is somebody that got their credentials stolen and somebody logged into a workstation and did absolutely nothing for 10 minutes before or 15 minutes before the uh, breach was discovered and, and the account was suspended, that's not a material breach. But if we know that somebody logged into that same workstation and went and accessed financial data for an upcoming quarter that has not been disclosed to the SEC yet, that's absolutely a materialistic breach. And how would we know that if we're not identifying that critical data? and then putting controls and visibility in place when that data is accessed. Absolutely, Don. And this really gets to the core of the issue, which is the goal and objective is really to prevent unauthorized access to those data and systems and services, coupled with making access control enforcement as granular as possible. And if you get to that point where you're baselining the organization, you're normalizing activity, then you're at a point where anything that deviates out of that normality now becomes interesting and could potentially represent an unauthorized access to a specific data set or some type of lateral movement that should be uh, that's outside of the norm that could be representing siphoning of intellectual property outside the company. So once that normalization is established and any of those deviations occur through your monitoring, that should then expedite the process around, hey, this could potentially be an event. Let's go investigate. And then you start the process of, okay, so what was accessed? What type of data was pulled? Was any data exfiltrated? If so, what type of data? And then you could start really refining down to determine that materiality. But without that baseline assessment to determine normalization across the network, most companies are going to be challenged. So how do you think the executive order and the subsequent various government agencies that are adopting Zero Trust are ultimately going to shape some of these upcoming laws? Recent conversations I've had with some folks in Washington is the taking a step back to look at the various types of disclosure uh, rules that are in place. And so what they don't want to do is introduce rules that are conflicting. And one conversation we had was with the Securities Exchange Commission and understanding those disclosure requirements 
as it aligns to DHS's critical infrastructure disclosure requirements. Because you may have an entity that's considered quote unquote critical infrastructure under DHS's mandate, but also may be a publicly listed company with the SEC. So there's a process now to make sure that those disclosure requirements in terms of timing and the materiality decisioning are in sync and aligned. Otherwise, we're gonna just we're gonna create confusion. So I think that's step one in the process. Let's make sure that we're normalizing the process and we're consistent. And then the next piece of the of the push will be, all right, so let's start turning up the machine, requiring companies to disclose. And it's gonna become a process where the government and the various types of regulatory agencies are gonna take certain metadata or potential patterns across some of these incidents that are occurring in the organizations, looking at deficiencies and controls and defenses. And those uh, learnings will inform additional regulation. And it's and those that additional regulation will help address some of those gaps because now companies are going to be required to deploy certain capabilities such as zero trust to address some of those gaps that may be causing high frequency of incidents. And so that that's going to be interesting as we start to see 2023 shape up in terms of regulation. And then the other effect outside the government circles will be if you had an incident, perhaps you disclosed or you didn't disclose and suddenly investors and shareholders start to become interested and they feel like you weren't being transparent enough, then there could be opportunities for additional class action lawsuits against directors and officers. And we're starting to see that now where, for instance, there was a CEO of a online alcoholic beverage delivery service that has a personal regulatory infraction on himself uh, from the FTC. And that's actually applied to him individually for 10 years. The personal accountability from class action and regulatory action is going to be another dynamic that needs to be considered. So in your dealings with the people within that are you're guiding within your organization now, helping them with communications and really educating them about what's next and what's coming next, how many people or what percentage roughly are really thinking about moving towards zero trust? I'd say about 70% of the organizations that we're involved with are aligning their strategy to a zero trust architecture. They're thinking about how do we calibrate our network to address those cyber threats that are going to most likely introduce operational financial impact. How do we apply principles of least privilege? How do we get to a point where we're calibrating our network security monitoring capabilities to introduce business and operational context? And how do we get to a point where we're normalizing activities so that any deviation from that normalization can be quickly detected and addressed? So I think zero trust is going to work hand in hand as we start to advance the cyber disclosure requirements. Are those CISOs and executives really thinking about zero trust as a preventative measure versus the more traditional reactive? I think we're seeing the potential for preventative or we call more left of boom. So how do we get less reactive and more proactive for preventative by aligning budgets 
and resources to those assets that could present material financial and operational harm. And that's going to require a more proactive approach going forward. Because the last thing we want is a continuation of firefighting without addressing the deployment of proactive measures. Otherwise, we're going to have the same conversation 10 years from now. Yeah, that's a very good point. And finally, do you see, putting on your crystal ball, do you see legislators really targeting and putting individual responsibility or targeting individuals for responsibility for not adopting the the appropriate set of controls, whether or not zero trust or not for an organization from the legislative side? Absolutely. I think we've seen that already with the FTC case. We saw actually the two matters that were brought to two companies and CEOs regarding the lack of uh, focus on cybersecurity one-on-one basics that resulted in cybersecurity breaches. We're going to see increased enforcement actions from the Securities and Exchange Commission targeting uh, individual companies that are registered with the SEC that haven't either disclosed or haven't applied the appropriate measures from a policy uh, reporting standpoint to the board of directors in terms of driving disclosure and driving data security requirements and protection requirements. In fact, the enforcement division has almost tripled in size over the last 18 months within the SEC they actually have not only attorneys that focus on privacy and data security, but have in-house cyber security experts that are able to help enforce and crack down on some of these requirements. If there's a case brought to a company, you'll have a cybersecurity expert on the other end of the table evaluating your network security architecture or your information security policies to really dive into where you have potential gaps. Absolutely doubling down on cyber expertise on the regulatory side. That's sometimes can be a very scary thought for cyber executives, especially if they don't have the support of the rest of their executive team on spending what they believe is necessary. And hence that brings us back to the whole conversation around making sure that enterprise risk management board of directors, executive teams are all talking about cyber as a business risk rather than cyber as a necessary evil, like it's been handled for so many years up until now. Absolutely. And again, cybersecurity I've always reinforced this. It's a team sport. It sounds cliche, but it really is. It's not solely on the laps of the CISO. In fact, the CISO does not own the security risk. The security risk is owned by the executive suite. It's owned by the board of directors. And it's up to them to understand the risk to ensure that the CISO receives the proper support and resources either directly into their budget or indirectly by informing how the organization makes decisions. And so that it's absolutely incumbent that the entirety of the organization rallies behind the cybersecurity mission. Thank you very much, Chris. Do you have any final thoughts on the matter that you maybe we didn't cover today? I think we've covered everything that's relevant to the purpose of the discussion. This is really about driving responsibility up and down the organization. Cybersecurity is no longer an issue reserved strictly for technology or compliance executives. It's an issue that impacts not only all board members, but also the entirety of the organization. The regulatory requirements are increasing 
around cybersecurity disclosures. So boards and C-suite executives must be fully informed. And therefore, that's going to create downstream pressure on the cybersecurity organization to be more transparent and more business aligned. And therefore, there's going to be an opportunity for us to deliver insights and resiliency as a community to help strengthen that communications and that strengthening of communications should result in increased budget and increased resources. Very valid points. Thank you very much, Chris. Really enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you, Don. Thanks for listening to this episode of Demystifying Zero Trust. We hope you found the content both interesting and insightful. Subscribe to this podcast to continue to explore why and how organizations should adopt Zero Trust.